Hello. Thank you for coming. I'm Jonathan Liebenau from the Department of Management. This evening, you're going to hear about an aspect of new mobile information and communication technologies that is a part of the broad transformation of our digital infrastructure. Our studies of innovation in these technologies, an area of research that colleagues in many parts of the LSC are engaged with in different ways, Ours focuses on the interrelationships among the architecture and functionality of the technologies, public policy implications, especially as they relate to regulation and enforcement, and the business models that are implied. We encourage you to download the whole report and in your copious free time read all, what, 70 pages of uh, detailed case studies and things. You'll get a hint of it from us today. Mobile, technology, uh, mobile data transfer holds special implications for privacy considerations, and my colleague, Gus Hossein, will address that in particular after I speak. Gus not only holds a PhD in information systems from the LSE, he has been both a scholarly analyst and an activist, known and feared, I think, uh, in capitals throughout the world for his efforts to ameliorate threats the digital age poses to privacy, identity, and generally the control of personal information. Gus and I, along with uh, Sylvia Elauf Calderwood and Patrick Carberg, who both have considerable engineering and business experience and are both former doctoral students here, formed the core of the research team behind the report that we are releasing today. Following Gus's talk, we'll hear from Mark Selby, Vice President of Nokia, with a wide range of responsibilities and long-standing experience in digital industries. Nokia has been a sponsor of this current work and we're grateful to the company and especially to Mark, whose deep understanding of business practices and beyond has greatly enriched our research and provides a model of enlightened business collaboration with academics. Uh, after these three relatively brief talks, we'll have ample time for questions, comments, and further discussions. Well, the implications of extended and intensive use of near-field communications, or NFC as I'll be calling it, are far-reaching for new business users, for the delivery of public services such as transport, and for public policy. The technology is transformative for a large number of applications and has stimulated innumerable innovative forms. But so far, there has been insufficient insight expressed in discussions about its impact and risks. In our recent studies, we've assessed the character and the use of technologies such as NFC as we see it, with a focus on what are by far its most extensive applications in public transport. We use uh, our evidence to structure a new understanding of the economic, business, legal, and policy aspects of its anticipated widespread growth, especially as embodied in mobile devices. Now, contactless card technology allows information to be exchanged via radio signals between two enabled devices over short distances. To date, it has most extensively been used for travel card tickets. It's increasingly being enabled for use on mobile phones with payment and other forms of exchange, such as loyalty uh, schemes, uh, check-in activities, and even games. But the lack of insightful discussion of these far-reaching effects brings with it risks 
They include a new level of uh, intensity of the pressure to undermine or alter principles and practices of safeguarding privacy. They raise concerns about the special status of children and other unwary users whose privacy or, uh, uh, or intended spending practices might be compromised. They also intensify the concern we might have about breaches of data security or data loss given the ability of NFC data to include location and time as well as payment information and much can be derived from that kind of data. At the outset of our research we reviewed the regulations and policies governing NFC in Europe and Asia and the incentives and barriers to the commercial development of NFC. The use of NFC and its predecessor technologies in public transport ticketing systems provide case studies for the research. These include the Oyster Card in London, the Sukiya system in Japan, and Octopus payments in Hong Kong, and we also studied uh, systems in Helsinki and Seoul and Berlin and elsewhere. The rate and direction of the diffusion of near-field communications technologies and the very character of business applications will be deeply affected now by privacy considerations. While the potential utility of these technologies is quite clear, the business models that are likely to succeed are going to rest on the extension of people's experiences with the existing transport systems. Herein we can see the shaping powers of the interactions among the technology, the commercial applications that take hold, their legal environment, and the public policies that emerge. Increasingly every transaction a user makes, overtly or not, generates data. Even as concerns about privacy increase amongst consumers, most are unaware of how every action they take generates particular kinds of transactional information. Yet users are keen to have more extensive services and equally demand that they remain in some kind of control over how consequent data are processed and stored. With NFC, this seemingly contradictory situation is going to grow even more complicated as new services and the emergence of concerns of abuse will develop complementarily. If the risks of privacy abuse are not properly assessed at an early stage, NFC may suffer from the same levels of criticism that have damaged confidence in other commercializable technologies. The confidence that is needed to ensure the success of NFC will come from credible business models that take advantage of the possible recombinations of components from separate industries into a new structure of interrelated businesses. Those new business models are characterized by interdependence that presupposes considerable cooperation on both technical features and revenue streams. We haven't seen this yet. The first order of investigation that we performed was to contrast the main business models that currently exist. We did this through an analysis of all of the key stakeholders in these systems, demonstrating stark differences. The shareholding structure of the Hong Kong system demonstrates one distinct form. Although owned by a public-private partnership with the Hong Kong government as the majority shareholder, Octopus International is a commercially driven profit-making body. 
It's also a body that has the means, by virtue of its registration as a financial service organization, to operate as a payment system and to enter into agreements with, uh, and indeed uh, compete against, credit card systems. Hong Kong does have an office of the Privacy Commissioner, which administers uh, the legacy personal data, in parentheses, privacy ordinance of 1996. That system has seemed inadequate for the expected responsibilities of network analysts uh, and uh, enforcement. The ambitions of the Hong Kong system to provide financial services, including moves to expand extensively through China, is a reflection of the strong powers and high expectations of the stakeholders. This can be contrasted with the limited public service remit of the Helsinki public transport system and its green card. Helsinki's expansion goals are primarily to allow for nationwide interoperability, with NFC being extended to provide a limited number of additional local public information services, but not linked to commercial applications in the near future. Privacy there is dealt with in a manner akin to other public sector information handling practices. The Sukiya system in Japan is different in other ways and is distinguished both by its large scale in terms of a number of regular users and by the breadth of its applications. Linked both to Sony as the primary equipment manufacturer and with the telecommunications company Docomo as a large shareholder, the core user, Japan Rail, holds only 5% interest. The structure of shareholding, along with the mass scale of engagement, provides extensive incentives for commercialization. This has spawned a rich variety of rewards, <coughs> incentive schemes and, uh, and coupons and stimulus practices that have helped to secure the popularity and the generic reach of the system. Although there is in general a weak official regulatory framework for privacy protection in Japan, the response of both customers and businesses has been to implement the so-called privacy mark system of compliance. This is a voluntary practice using third-party evaluators to certify that private enterprises and government bodies are compliant with all relevant national laws and standards. It was in in initiated over a dozen years ago by the Japan Institute for Promotion of Digital Economy and Community, uh, explicitly because of the access that private bodies have to networks that process personal information. Here, our Oyster system, although operated by Transport for London, is moving towards allowing for a fully integrated credit card payment system. This is a route to extend and expand the payment system and follows TFL piloting of NFC in conjunction with credit card companies, telecom operators, and equipment manufacturers. It's also a means of extending the utility of the transport ticketing system without encroaching on the limited public service remit of Transport for London. For next year and the London Olympics, the system will expand and become integrated with a standard adopted by credit card companies for their contactless payments. Someday it might even gain acceptance necessary to become a national system, we'll see, but that is likely to occur at the expense of what has become a very strong oyster brand. 
The privacy implications of this trend, however, are as yet unresolved and are likely to conflict. Bringing together payment and transport systems may yet result in conflicting consumer demands also. As with banking, consumers may become more interested in gaining access to transactional logs to see how funds have been expended. Credit cards and bank account logs are familiar to individuals and so the enhanced transparency may be required as NFC applications move beyond just transport. A core purpose of data retention and analysis has been to improve transportation systems' efficiency by tracking individual movements. Tracking those movements yields information that is also of great utility to many businesses and especially advertisers. However, the implied contract we enter into with public service providers cannot be assumed to apply to everybody else who might later become a stakeholder in the wide range of places and activities that we take our mobile phones along to. We may be sanguine with the implied contract that allows our travel behavior information to be used for efficient transport management. However, we are unlikely to be so content about giving carte blanche access to all the stakeholders involved with a wide range of transactions throughout our daily lives. The resistance that we express, or that of the courts and regulators on our behalf, could stifle the application of the new technology. So our framework of analysis and the specific solutions that you'll hear about from Gus Hussain and Mark Selby helps us to avert the danger of stifling the dissemination of NFC and its related technologies. At the core of the solution is a careful approach to privacy and to identity management. The trend now is for governments to seek to register individuals' SIM cards as though they were bank accounts or passports. Given that mobility devices are linked with payment systems and unique identifiers, this provides the means to track all transactions, potentially. This requires us, then, to consider current practices of sharing of information across institutions, from Transport for London to other transport networks, or to many other institutions in the case of payment systems. The use of a single persistent identifier will be problematic, as it will allow for the profiling of customers at various points of data exchange. It risks increasing the likelihood of fraud, particularly if this identifier is also a credit card number. While credit card companies have detailed security standards for vendors, Oyster may need to build some of these precautions anew into their more processing-capable technologies. The case of Hong Kong also provides us some special insights. Privacy has repeatedly arisen as a concern in the use of the octopus card. Furthermore, the lack of user awareness about their rights is in itself problematic. This is highlighted in a survey uh, last year which found that more than 90% of respondents say they haven't read the personal information statements when they provided data to apply for octopus services. I'd sort of like to know who the other 10% are who really did read all of those things, and it's a common knowledge that these <coughs> provisions are not studied by people who are, who are subjecting themselves to them. 
The personal data policy from Octopus is a public document, of course, but not widely known or understood by users of the system. Indeed, very few citizens, even those well-informed, could comprehend these policies. Legislators have already called for Hong Kong's privacy laws to be strengthened to compel companies to be more transparent about how and to whom they distribute personal data. Although Octopus is not exclusively a public organization, its cards are used in such a way by most citizens, indeed they're commonly used like ID cards in some situations, that the operators might be obliged to comply well beyond the minimum of the law. Due to its particular structure of functions and stakeholders, in addition to its special position in Hong Kong, together with the likely new applications and business services, Octopus will require particular regulation for its operations with regard to privacy. The comparison among transport systems coming out of our study demonstrates varieties of implementation in the technology and business models. All these various systems could coexist, but uh, given the infringement of rights that some elements of the expansion of systems threaten, new regulatory practices are going to be demanded. In April this year, the EU decided to encourage self-regulation for the near future expansion of NFC in Europe. The overall goal is to allow a period of free competition and quick development of economically sustainable business models using this technology. Well, the Commission has shown generous faith in the ability of the industry to recognize and act upon its business interests. For example, European principles regarding opting in when individuals allow for companies to use personal data need to be made much more practicable when applied to NFC. Many recognize that the current approach to choosing between opt-in and opt-out as an act of consent is inadequate for NFC applications. Although consent is an important part of the perception of having control of one's privacy, users cannot adequately assess how effective and at what point the individual knows when there is a default opt-in or opt-out. We're seeing many subtle but widespread changes in attitudes and responses to privacy as relates to the use of these new technologies. NFC and its use on various platforms, most notably mobile phones, has great potential for involving and informing the user in ways that is currently impossible and the simple contactless card implementations. It is therefore necessary to devise ways to inform users about the manner in which their information is used that is clear and unobtrusive, and in turn to ensure that information is only processed accordingly. We foresee that there are ways to overcome the limitations of this consumer control problem to accommodate other stakeholders of the NFC business environment. An effective measure will be to create mechanisms for quick assessment for each new service that is provided for NFC in regards of the practical aspects of implementation, that is data retention, location, and distribution. This could be uh, something like what's used as a, some industries as a fact sheet uh, by companies and regulators to provide a comprehensive understanding to consumers 
It might work. This sort of fact sheet could be analogous to the way McDonald's provides a calorie count to people buying burgers. We'll see. Information that's recorded and stored by different NFC stakeholders ought to be bounded by a contractual obligation of a last use by date for data. Certain NFC services require storing data for shorter periods of time than others, or they might, uh, or they might not require stored data at all. By establishing a maximum time for storage of data that is economically sustainable within the business model, there will likely be benefits in reducing potential fraud and violations of the privacy rights of consumers. This might not only be done in the form of a policy principle. It shouldn't be limited to that. Rather, auditable statements must be provided, backed up by technological design, with serious penalties applied for failing to adhere to the claims. Many customer concerns have not yet been addressed by the current providers of NFC services. Clear guidelines need to be provided about the procedures for registering complaints and for rectifying violations. This outlook will be more complicated when mobile-based e-wallets become popular features, when more people make use of multiple authentication features, and when there is access to a large number of different kinds of funding sources, such as credit cards, banks, and semi-formal loan facilities. Our comparative research shows the value of clarifying accountability terms for NFC use. Much of the attention paid to accountability is focused on determining the limits for transactions and especially the variety of extensions outside of payment exchanges. In contrast, too little serious debate is in evidence about cases of fraud or unlawful use of personal information by others. That is being left to law enforcement authorities post hoc. Clarifying and embedding preventive measures for accountability will have strong positive effect upon the development of these business models. Unless properly designed and deployed, NFC could very well make matters worse in this regard. But I'm optimistic. The governance of the NFC system is constituted of multiple stakeholders, some of them obtaining significant control, moving very quickly, over the potential market of NFC services and applications. Coherence and consistency are required as users become familiar with new ways of deploying NFC. If one NFC intervention varies significantly from another, while obscuring the levels of protection and invasiveness, then the entire system is poorly served and, and, the, te and, uh, and the technology can and will become maligned. Greater cooperation is required among stakeholders to resolve practices for in interfaces, minimize the legal ambiguities, and come to agreement on best practices in the issuance and validation of cards. While the industry pays considerable attention to this at hardware and software levels, they have not taken into account the business significance of it in relation to how to handle the multiple identities and models of service. This recommendation does not affect uh, current payment systems in place to deal with the validation of transactions more generally. However, it is, uh, I'm not attacking the banking system and uh, payments generally now. Uh, however, it's likely that some institutions will at some time soon 
uh, have to be responsible for deciding which third parties can or cannot participate in the NFC system by issuing and validating these cards. So to conclude, it's not so simple as to say that NFC is inevitable because of its widespread use. Nor is it inevitably going to expand because key market players have decided to include the technology within their devices and services. But as we have seen with transport, the potential for NFC is immense and may yet challenge some of the well-established market participants and provide new and fertile grounds for business and trade. NFC, if deployed well, like many innovations, has much to offer and it may yet take on a wide variety of forms. However, the risks to personal privacy must be addressed. This is not only to protect against surveillance, it's essential in order to ensure that there is confidence in the marketplaces that may yet emerge with widespread use of NFC. The debate on privacy and technology typically polarizes into technology advocates who stress the virtues of promoting innovation in conflict with those who emphasize privacy seemingly at the expense of effective novel applications. We need deeper co uh, coordination of these features as we've described in our cases. And we can have both without succumbing to positions that undermine either one of them. Now I'd like to turn the podium over to Gus who's going to take further the discussion about privacy. So somebody who works in the area of privacy and human rights, let me uh, just enjoy this polarization for a little bit longer. It's uh, the story of innovation is so often simplified. There are good people and there are bad people. When it comes to innovation involving technologies that deal with personal information, the story is very simple. You have the consumers who just want the coolest and newest technologies. You have these heroic innovators who all they want to do is provide the technology to those who want them for their own interests. And then you have those mean, mean governments and regulators who want to get in the way and steal these things, or steal the innovation away and destroy the party between the innovators and the consumers. But don't worry, there's always a happy ending to these stories. The bad people are vanquished, the innovators are the great heroes, and everybody lives happily ever after as they clutch their mobile phones as they fall asleep. <laughs> there are three morals to this story. First, the first moral is, well, you can either have regulation or you can ha have innovation, but you can't have them both. Second moral of the story, regulation always lags behind innovation, which is why you shouldn't have regulation. Third moral of the story, regulators and policymakers, well, when it comes to technology, they're not terribly bright. And so, as a result, they should not regulate or establish policy when it comes to fancy technologies. Only two of these are true. Let me come back to each. First, there's the innovation versus the regulation. This is the, uh, the Schmittian or Zuckerbergian view of the world. Uh, the two of them, uh, Eric Schmidt and Mark Zuckerberg, just articulated this exact balance within the past few months 
uh, in Paris at this silly meeting at the EG8, and Schmidt, whenever he gets on the radio or on TV, he always ends up saying something that uh, aggravates all the privacy people at Google. Um, but generally, they, it's industry lobbyists that take this line, which is, look, uh, we need libertarian ideals in order to promote uh, the development and deployment of innovation. And we can't have regulation dragging us down and limiting new business models. Yet, often these are the same companies that seek regulatory protection, for example, well, not in the case of Google or Facebook, but when it comes to copyright. But the reason there's this competition, the reason industry doesn't often like regulations, because at least in this space, where these spaces of mobile or new platforms, they are the regulators. They decide who gets to play. They decide who comes into the app stores and under which conditions. And they don't want somebody else saying, this is how you're supposed to do it. You're supposed to have privacy policies for your apps or something like that. No, the industry want to be the ones who are regulating. So it's not that regulation inhibits uh, innovation. It's just those who innovate want to be the regulators themselves. And so they argue that we consent to their regulation by merely using their technology. You use an Apple iPhone, you've consented to the way that they do things on their platform. But crucially, these technology companies forget that before we are their consumers, and even after we are their consumers, we are first in this real world. In this real world where there are laws, there are conventions, and these things that get in the way called human rights. And as they interact with us, they must respect those Facts. We are not just following their rules, but we have, well, they have rules to follow of their own. But then we get into the second moral. Regulation is always behind innovation. And so why should we regulate? It's always going to be behind. New laws will always be behind technology. We saw that with the injunctions debate in this country when they uh, went after Twitter. We saw that this with the riots when they wanted to shut down Twitter and Facebook. And everybody's saying, oh, you silly politicians. You can't regulate these things. You're way behind the technology. And this is true, kind of. When it comes to privacy, there are regulations in place. They were established in the 1960s, and they are still as valid as they are today. Don't collect information you don't need. Don't process that information, process that information unless it's necessary. Delete it when you no longer need it. And generally, it's nice to ask people for their information and let them know what you're doing with it. That's been the law of the land across Europe since the 1970s, in the United Kingdom since the 1980s, and now it's in 77 countries around the world. This is what we call data protection. So the law is already there. Now, the laws don't say things like NFC. They don't even say mobile phones. Actually, the laws of our call don't even say the term phones. But that's the legal framework we have in place. But the complaint that regulation is behind is, is valid still because regulators are trying to catch up with new technologies. So use the example of RFID radio frequency identification. Everybody's got a modern passport, has an RFID chip in their passport. And so when they, uh, when they get into a country, your passport's read by just putting the passport down against the machine, the machine uh, takes the information off it. Two years ago, the regulators of Europe 
and the European Commission decide we're going to regulate how this technology works. We're going to do it in a co-regulatory way, they said. So they sat down with industry to find a way to devise a regulatory system that's not too interventionist, but still deals with the latest technology. How do we get these privacy frameworks from the 1960s to apply to the latest technologies? And the solution was, well, interesting. They said, you're going to have to conduct something called a privacy impact assessment if you want to use this technology. That is, you have to, as a company, you have to describe what it is you're doing with this technology, what information you're collecting, how you're using it, and how you thought about the risks. The problem with PIAs is that they're difficult. They take time and resources and money. And applying this to NFC will be incredibly difficult. It'll be, it could possibly damage the market. It could dissuade industry from going in and investing in NFC. But there's a way around that, a very simple way. I'm going to describe two different wallets. The first wallet is essentially, this is my oyster wallet. It's essentially an oyster. And on this oyster it has your information. And the back office, there's this database that keeps track of your travels for the past eight weeks. But imagine Oyster or a similar system expanded and you could suddenly do payments on it. Imagine if your LSE ID card was on this exact Oyster, this exact same card. You could walk into the building, you could buy your coffees. What if your government ID was on this single card with one single back-end system? That's one idea for a wallet. And it's not too hard to imagine such a wallet because if you know anything about the history of the LSE, just a few years ago, the UK government proposed something very close to that. They want their national ID to be the ID of IDs. Wherever you went in interface with government, you'd use that ID. They even thought that you might want to use that ID as a student ID to get in this building. In Hong Kong, that's already being used for their own um, uh, travel card is being used to get into buildings. The problem with this, this first wallet is that that wallet knows everything or at least the back-end system does. It knows every single transaction that takes place. In the case of Oyster, as I said, Oyster retains your travel information for eight weeks. Imagine that card is now being used for financial transactions. Financial regulations tend to require, for surveillance and anti-money laundering purposes, transactions be kept, say, on the average for about seven years. If a company like Oyster had to make a decision, well, what do we do? We retain for eight weeks or for seven years, what are they going to have to do? Well, policymakers will wake up and realize, wow, we just invented something along the lines of cash. We can't have that be anonymous. We can't have that not be recorded for an extended period of time. So I guarantee you, if this wallet exists and is expanded upon, it will not be privacy friendly. But then there's the other wallet, this more friendly, interesting and innovative wallet. This wallet is like our current wallets. You open it up, you have multiple cards. You have a bank card, you have a credit card, multiple bank cards, multiple credit cards. You have your student ID, you have your passport, your, your government or your national ID. They're all different identifiers. And when you use this wallet, the wallet itself has no idea what's in there, but the wallet protects what's in there. And so it's possible in the modern world, using NFC, that you could design a, a wallet 
where the software protects what's in that wallet, doesn't try to unify everything under a single ID, but instead protects the idea that there are multiple IDs interacting all the time. And sometimes it could even interact without disclosing any personal information whatsoever. The mathematics are there. The technology is possible. The problem with this system, I'm not convinced industry will build it because they're going to want to build systems that they can look into where they can get access to the information and make some money out of it. But there's, those are the two options when it comes to these wallets. Those are the two options when it comes to privacy and technology <coughs> and NFC. And I'd be curious to see which one actually gets built. But don't for a second think it can't be done. That technology is going to lead the way and regulations such as privacy is going to have to change. It's not necessarily the fact. In, in fact, privacy can actually help shape the direction of technology. And then third, we get to the third moral of the story. Legislators and regulators are technologically unaware or just not very bright when it comes to these things. And that's absolutely true. Five years ago, the LSC, as I said, got in a very bad fight with the UK government. And the UK government called us a lot of bad names, called us technologically stupid at one point. They were so confident in their ID card. They were so confident in their understandings of how technologies worked. And I always wondered, how were they so confident about the way these advanced technologies work and we were not? Well, they had more money. And they had consultants who were selling to them these wonderful promises, these ambitious plans of how an ID card would solve all the, the world's problems, would stop terrorism, would stop money laundry, would stop everything. And essentially, it was that first wallet that they wanted. The wallet of wallets, this ID of IDs. Replace everything with a single ID and let the government be involved in every single one of them. My point isn't to attack the government's now failed system, but actually to point out that when it comes to policymakers, they don't understand technology, but they will listen to those who have the most powerful narrative. And that's what's worrying. Evgeny Morozov wrote a, uh, uh, an article last week where he was talking about the world of privacy and the anti-privacy folks. And he was noting that it's interesting that we paint the anti-privacy people, such as my, uh, sorry, the, the pro-privacy people, such as myself, uh, as anti-technologists who are so powerful at convincing regulators to get into action, so powerful at convincing legislators to do something. He said, where does this view of the world come from? When you have, he compared my organization, Privacy International, we have a full-time staff of three, to Google, whose lobbyists in D.C. alone have a budget of $5 million a year. So tell me, when it comes to educating, say, people in Washington, D.C. about the latest technology, who's going to have a more powerful voice? The privacy people or the $5 million? Which leads to the second question. How the hell do I get my hands on that kind of money? <laughs> but that aside... Technology developers have an opportunity. They have an opportunity to actually build technology that isn't blind 
to the processing of information, isn't just can't we get more information and monetize this information and do cooler things with this information, but they have the opportunity to create a technology and to create services that actually empower consumers at the same time as that it protects their personal information. It's going to take a hell of a lot of push to get industry to be aware of these options and to actually act on these options. And until there is a market awareness about this, at some point, either the regulators are going to wake up and force industry down a certain path and possibly push them too far down a certain path to the point where innovation may stop, or it just takes one failure, one high-profile failure, and the entire system will come crashing down. Thank you. Always a joy to follow Patrick and Gus. <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen, NFC, I suggest, is probably the most exciting mobile technology in our midst at the moment. It has extraordinary commercial and social value, and the reason why Nokia asked the LSE to undertake this. Um, work with us is because we became concerned as to the level of debate concerning the technology. Let me explain what I mean by that. <clears throat> when, often when we see new technology emerging, there is almost a herd-like behavior. People go charging in one direction and then another so that if you actually follow news items, if you follow conferences over the last 18 months, a lot of the discussion has been around where are the devices? Well, the devices are there. There are plenty of them from both ourselves and from other manufacturers. Then the debate has been over <coughs> purely mobile transactions, <coughs> excuse me, mobile payments. Now, Nokia has been involved in NFC trials, pilots, and commercial services for nearly 11 years now. And having undertaken our own research, we came to the conclusion that 68% of the value to be realized from NFC was going to be realized from what we term open NFC. And this is the application of the technology to uses that require no data whatsoever relating to an individual. It can be as simple as using your mobile device with NFC and simply touching a loudspeaker so that the music playing on your mobile will now come out of the speaker. Touching a headset. Games. Using this for education. Just simply using NFC cards with phone. A myriad of solutions have been developed by innovators and these continue to grow. But last year we became concerned that a lot of the discussions seemed to be focusing on the wrong things. Quite apart from where were the devices, 
we started seeing a lot of people who were getting awfully excited by rather naive Excel spreadsheets, which basically said, how many transactions in the world are there, or within a country? If we were to take a percentage of every transaction, how much is that worth? And then you work from zero to maybe 10 or 15% penetration, and the number that comes at the end of this Excel spreadsheet is very, very big, and some people got awfully excited. We thought this was so bizarrely naive that we really needed to look the entire framework. And one of the core lessons learned from all quality initiatives is that prevention is so much better than correction. Therefore, by undertaking this research, by looking at the way contactless has been used, and looking at the more advanced business models that we could anticipate, a series of questions started to arise. Now, as has, uh, Gus has just um, mentioned, when looking at the regulatory framework, when looking at the innovation um, drivers, I have to say that in my many years of working with technology, very, very rarely have I found an individual or an organization that genuinely wants to do something evil. Looking afterwards at what's been done, one might reconsider, but it's rare to find people that go out determined to do this from the outset. And with this research, one of the great things that's emerged from this work, and you'll see it when you have a chance to read through uh, the entire report, is that this does indeed confirm the extraordinary opportunities that NFC provides. If only one looks at the cost of handling cash, the savings to be made from that are potentially enormous. But what's fascinating is that as we see different organizations coming together, we see the risks associated with data being shared between different parties and individuals not knowing where that data is actually going. Therefore, we have this opportunity for now to ensure that solutions and services that are being developed can take on board the findings, can raise the quality of the debate, and the guidelines that have been presented here do indeed present a model that can help any developer to start developing solutions that are likely to meet regulatory requirements at some point in the future. Let me quote, in fact, from the last section of the recommendations. The key questions raised throughout this report must be answerable by all stakeholders in the emerging system. How are you informing and involving citizens and consumers? Protecting their information from unnecessary collection and use, and ensuring that any arising risks are mitigated. One day the law will catch up, and regulators will wonder what their roles are. And, though it may be overly optimistic, we can hope that there will be very little for them to do. Not because NFC failed to live up to its potential, but because the positive opportunities for transforming markets and the ways that we engage with citizens and consumers 
have been harnessed to the benefit of all. Quite apart from looking at what regulators might do and might not do, I'm also mindful of um, something that the CEO of Unilever said earlier this year. When he was talking about the uprising in Egypt, he said, it's interesting that the people were able to remove a government in six weeks. If they could do that to a government, that they could do that to us, i.e. Unilever, in a nanosecond. Awareness of the technology, what it can bring, those benefits, but educating users is going to be critical. And all companies or brands that wish to play in this field need to be mindful of the power that consumers and citizens now have. It really is exciting and from the range of innovations that are now being seen at multiple NFC events, there are NFC conferences just about every week somewhere in the world, some of them enormous, we are seeing extraordinary, exciting um, developments coming through. We need to ensure that everyone working in this space is focusing on specific elements. They need to be focusing on the question of control, of consent, and of accountability. There have been too many that, when looking at the business systems, have got so excited as to how they are going to control everything. My guidance to them would be dream on. Okay? That control could be wrested from you. With regards to consent, citizens, consumers need to understand what they are indeed consenting to, and that needs to be made clear, as you've heard already. And then we have the question of accountability. Who is responsible? In some cases, who is liable? And that needs to include the consumer or the citizen as well. We also need to be mindful that for NFC to scale, and realize the full potential that it offers, it needs to grow in a manner that works across multiple geographies, multiple countries, multiple regulatory environments. Now, once again, I come back and say that I have not discovered many people, particularly regulators, that desperately want to stifle innovation. But the only way we're going to make this happen with the value that could be achieved is by working together. And we also need to be mindful of a few things. So one can get very excited about the technology enabling one thing or another, but if we take here in the UK, talking with one of the larger retailers recently, they pointed out very, um, well, slightly surprisingly to me, but they pointed out in with no surprise on their part, that for them to update the point-of-sale terminals in all of their stores would take, of course, four years. Therefore, when I read media reports suggesting that we should all be focusing on mobile payments immediately, I would say, get real. 
let's understand that there are complex ecosystems that need to be put in place. While those are physically put in place, we need to be ensuring that everyone is focusing on the points that are being raised within this report. <clears throat> Too often, people get carried away with, with what is termed attention economics and believe that sucking data in is the most important um, element, giving the eyeballs, giving the ears. Let me get data on everyone. It's not true. There are many other ways to realize value. And if it's done in a responsible way, we can go forward. I would like to thank, on behalf of Nokia, London School of Economics, and the team specifically that's worked on this um, report. The research that has been done, I believe, is going to have enormous implications in many countries. I think the review that has been undertaken, particularly of existing business systems around transportation, where we can see some of the immediate benefits of NFC coming through is outstanding. And in terms of moving forward, I'm delighted with the optimism that everyone feels towards NFC's potential success. All of us can make it happen. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. We have now uh, a good amount of time for open discussion, questions, and comments. And I'll just uh, start out with a, a light hand uh, as a chair and ask people who want to make comments to uh, raise. I think we have microphones. Raise your hand, uh, wait for the microphone, and please uh, state your name if you're willing. Uh, you will be recorded, so if you don't want your privacy violated, then you can keep your name to yourself. Who wants to start? We have a question. Let, let's start. <clears throat> Sorry, Merlin Errol, um, I sit in the House of Lords as an, a crossbench independent peer. Um, the problem with an awful lot of this is the difference in attitude between those who would be protected and think the government and security services can protect them by knowing everything, and those that know that that leads to the Stasi, because at the, the end of the day, the Puritans will rise to the top. And what you have to remember is that the people like controlling people's lives as Puritans, they have a haunting fear that somewhere someone might be enjoying themselves. And so they want to protect you for your own good. And so we're misusing things. And for instance, if you take the credit card, I'll finish very, fairly quickly. If you take credit card, that is there for the purpose of paying. At the end of the day, banks know how to take the risk on the number of people who pay and don't pay. The only reason we've got the real problem with signing up bank accounts and things is because the security services see it as a way of they trace the money because they've read too many spy stories, they think they'll catch all the bad guys. Actually, the bad guys are so big they get round it all. So all it does is stop smaller people doing the thing. But that's the first of the problems. And as a result, you come to the next one about consent, um, which is that in many cases you need the service, so you have to consent, even if you disagree with what it's for. And so there is no, there is no concept of consent really there. Um, I probably ought to leave it there in order to give some other people some time, but I could easily come back with another couple of points. I, I, I'd be happy to hear more of your points uh, a little bit later. Uh, I, I certainly agree with your uh, comment about consent. Uh, and I think that the surveys would show how little people really, in effect, care about the process of giving consent, which demonstrates that they, in any case, have abandoned any 
uh, strong concept that they that they have powers to to uh, uh, to apply this concept of consent. I mean, a simple answer to that is: if you want to sign up for the Sony guarantee, you have to give your date of birth. Why? <laughs> Why? Gus, <laughs> you want to come? On? People are. So I never spoke about attitudes in my, in my talk, and I never do, because uh, people are confusing. They will give their information over without much thought, but they will become incredibly self-righteous and angry when, they, when their trust is breached. And they expect remedy. They expect the full force of the law to go after, say, the Sonys of the world if something goes wrong, and they will be incredibly angry when they cannot get that remedy. And so that's what they expect from the state. At the same time, yes, they expect the state to protect them. And I, 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 I am amazed that we have cash today. <laughs> we would not invent cash the way we would today. But that's. But if, if, if in the House of Lords, in the House of Commons, they said, let's come up with a new payment system, it would not be anonymous. It would not be cash-like. It would be the tracking of every single transaction. Exactly. The organization I work for is responsible for um, taking a, taking Mondex down on a trade descriptions under the Trade Descriptions <laughs> Act because they claimed what they were doing back in 1995 was anonymous, when it was very far from being so. So uh, we hurt them for it. But name a payment system around that is accepted by governments that is anonymous. A few years ago, uh, the US uh, government was talking about the, the, the golden standard for tax returns would be one that they could compile for you because they would know every single transaction that is made in your name. Sorry, that's not very uplifting. Um, <laughs> but it won't happen because they'll screw it up. That's more uplifting. Yes. Good evening. I'm Richard Pointer of Smartex. Um, may I ask, or make three observations very briefly? Um, regulators have a bad press, probably because they're usually useless. Look at the banking crises. People power is much more effective, and that's what's going to happen with the success or failure of NFC, in my view. I would make another slightly cynical point that many more modern systems using smart cards card is literally just tapping to provide a key where all the brains and all the information is in the server. Far more fraud, I suspect, is conducted by crooked employees selling 10 million credit card numbers because it's much cheaper and more efficient to do that than to hack into individual phones. And lastly, I have to say um, that the lack of confidence that you described at the beginning or privacy concerns um, I know of no example in my 66 years of when that has prevented a new and exciting technology from happening. Um, I'm afraid it has been the almost complete lack of handsets in this country. Japanese have got about 60 million of them deployed, and we've just heard announcements from Nokia and others that by the end of next year, is it, all your smartphones at least will have NFC capability. Uh, why are we? five years behind so much of the rest of the world, and in particular the developing countries. Thank you. 
just to uh, just uh, make one point, the uh, currently uh, we have seven devices out there um, uh, with NFC. No, seven models. <laughs> seven <laughs> models, and our competitors have at least as many themselves. What is interesting, however, is that if you go back on devices that we have launched in the past with full NFC capability, which have been used for a lot of um, pilots, it's, it was interesting the way that, um, if you're familiar with 6212 in particular, um, parties who were looking at building business systems, new uh, business systems, uh, became very concerned as to the, t the way the technology was deployed on the device. Um, Nokia listened to that and made changes accordingly. I think the um, one of the lessons taken from this is that where Nokia is providing devices largely for these different system solutions for other people to provide, we are looking simply at providing the tools for others to use. It became apparent that some people were becoming not only naive with regard to the Excel spreadsheets I mentioned earlier, but also becoming incredibly naive towards where the control points were, what they could control. And one, had, one saw people effectively saying, it's all mine, it's all mine, it's all mine, go away. And I think that that bubble has effectively been burst. I hope it has, as people have realized the complexity that more is required um, for these things to happen. I think, though, that if I could go back quickly on the Mondex thing, though, what was so interesting with Mondex is that, and with other trials, and the lessons learned from many of the projects that have been taken on board, is that with Mondex, it was possible to walk down Fifth Avenue and buy a fur coat for a vast sum of money and pay for it by swiping one's phone. Well, of course, when you're spending that, but you couldn't walk down and pay for a parking meter. Okay? Now, most people that are spending that vast sum of money on a fur coat actually would like someone to give them a glass of champagne and give them a handwritten receipt for it, rather than swiping a phone. And in many ways, there's a naivety as to regard how do we make these lower value transactions occur. And that is where I think that uh, one of the important lessons that was learned from that. Uh, Lack of confidence hasn't stopped uh, development of these technologies. Uh, for, first of all, I think there are examples where lack of confidence has stopped development of uh, and, and rapid dissemination of technologies. And I, I think indeed that the difference between what we see in the rapid diffusion of these technologies in Japan and in Korea especially, uh, is that they have addressed the confidence issue quite early on. And they did so with a, a light regulatory touch, but with a heavy industry self-regulation, one that could be audited, and one that was also robust for trade, at least between Japan and, and Korea. And so the dimensions of trade, trust, and auditability were in place quite early on. They were able to do this partly because of the scale factors associated with Japan Rail and with the stakeholder structure, which gave financial incentives for various people to push this ahead. The point about our comparative analyses is 
that that stands apart from the European models which we've studied. They're not ahead of us because of some mystery of how the Japanese and Korean technology markets work. They're, they've gone ahead along these lines because they've solved one crucial element of the, uh, of the business model uh, relatively early on. Uh, and they've done so uh, to, the confidence, to the confidence of users who are now quite happy to see the application extend to various other innovative forms. This hasn't happened in Hong Kong. It has not happened yet here. But we can see how adopting these business models and adjusting them to the kinds of practices that our, our industry is capable of cooperating with and our regulators are capable of understanding uh, will, I think, free up some of what is, in effect, a, a kind of logjam. Hiya, my name's Shana. Um, I've got a question from Mark. Um, so given your comments about the best use of NFC, does that mean we won't really see Nokia making the same sort of push as other bigger firms into mobile payments? Is it less of a priority? Um, I don't know what the others are doing. <laughs> no, no, I mean, <clears throat> sorry. Sorry, excuse the uh, flippancy. Um, <laughs> With regard to mobile payments, um, there are a range of questions, and Nokia has been um, active in mobile payments. I mentioned the 6212 four years ago. We used to have um, our engineers from Helsinki who would love standing in McDonald's in Manhattan demonstrating that the 6212 could actually make the payment, and the staff in those stores um, not believing them and engineers literally standing in the stores paying for everyone in line just to keep proving to the staff that it worked. So we have absolutely um, been there. Now our concern is not are we going to be in it or not, and I was somewhat concerned by seeing uh, one media article today um, which saddened me because I think it's just missing the point. With regard to mobile payments, there are many elements that need to be considered. Firstly, in terms of the ecosystems of POS terminals, being in place. That is one. The second one is what currency? So when we're looking at currencies, it's very um, easy for us all to think immediately of hard currencies, but now we're seeing closed-loop currencies, and those are taking many different forms and guises. So those absolutely are being looked at. But the purpose of this evening is certainly not making any announcements with regard to Nokia products or whatever. Uh, I suggest that uh, if you're not, get along to Nokia World next week. Thank you, Pat Walsh, GSMA. Um, Jonathan, I think when the project first started, um, part of its raison d'etre was that you'd look at user perceptions and how they influenced consumer behavior. And I'm wondering if there's that in the report. And I wanted to explore more uh, between Gus, perhaps, and yourself about this issue of consent, in that the, the key unique thing about mobile is that it's immediate, it's dynamic, it's contextual. People are in a hurry, they want things now, but they want them personalized. So in that context, have you, um, within the report, um, 
considered how you might provide someone with a, a notice, how you might obtain their consent? What kind of circumstances do you believe consent would be required rather than, say, transparency, choice and notice, giving somebody a preference? And what kind of defaults and what kind of, uh, for what kind of contexts uh, do you think might be necessary to set? I'm not sure if you've done all that in the report or not. Well, I, I welcome this as, as an academic who gets the opportunity now to say what further research there is. We have designed uh, laboratory experiments to do this, and we haven't conducted them yet. Uh, so we, we hope to have the opportunity to conduct them sometime in the next year, uh, but I'm, I'm not co confident that, that we will. It's necessary to do that in conjunction with behavioral psychologists, and we have the team ready to go ahead and do it, but we haven't had the means to, to take that forward. We do have an idea of how to conduct those experiments in ways that have never been conducted before because most of the work that's been done along these lines has been done in the form of market research and consumer responses to what's called in the industry the open box uh, experimentation. And we don't have enough of what uh, academics want to see, which is uh, a conceptual basis for theories that we can then go to apply in a variety of conditions. So uh, then we'll, we'll, we'll have a much better idea of, first of all, what difference this kind of different levels of consent really make to people, and what in practice the act of consenting looks like to observers on uh, lo looking, looking at, uh, at a population under experimental conditions. Can I just one slide? Yeah. Um, going back to something that was raised here earlier, that this is not something new we're talking, we're bigging up NFC here because it's allegedly new, but it's been used in other countries quite successfully. And you talked about um, in Asia, for example, where users are happy with the evolved business models. So what is it? in those models that they're happy with? And can you translate that to the business models that are projected to be brought into place here in Europe, where you're saying we don't have those same regulatory or self-regulatory frameworks? Yeah, I, 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 I can't give the, the kind of detailed scholarly answer that I really would like to, uh, because as you can see, to satisfy me, I'd need to be able to, to really conduct the, the analysis. What Japanese and Korean users are certainly content with is the level of trust that they have in the companies behind the technologies, and that gives them a feeling that they can go ahead and make use of the technologies on a relatively large scale. And they have, uh, and this may be ephemeral, uh, it certainly isn't a, a deep-seated feature, uh, but they have right now a, a pleasure in the novelty that unfolds with the technology, and that pleasure in the novelty is something that drives some of the markets uh, for, for the short term. Uh, and that we, we don't have. We have uh, a, an attitude of mistrust. We have uh, considerable experience that the, that the press reminds us of, of lost data, of reputational risk being put uh, in, in very serious conditions when companies are seen to have uh, uh, violated uh, principles of, of, of data privacy. Uh, and there's not a sense that the practices associated with, with the 
the whole of the stakeholder community uh, are ready to, to provide the, the, the basis for that yet. The, the experience in Japan and Korea shows that it can and, and uh, certainly be done. There's, there's absolutely no reason why their experiences should not be transportable here. We have lessons to learn from them, mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, and, and uh, I'm sure that we will be able to learn them. It may take uh, somewhat longer, and it may come at the expense <coughs> of certain principles of regulatory oversight to begin with, and it may come at the expense of some principles of corporate autonomy in engaging with, uh, with the various stakeholders. If I might just add, if I might just add to it, I think the, um, the level of experience and confidence that consumer citizens have in other countries, I think in Hong Kong, where we had, um, what, Octopus introduced 97, um, and it's being used in so many different ways that people have become familiar with it, so that in many schools, children use it not only to pay for their meals in canteens, but is actually used for the register. Um, so they actually register in the school with it. Now, within Europe, we learned a lesson when we looked at mobile internet usage in Japan and said that could be done here and we did not put all of the components together and actually help people um, to get to it and we also had the problem of setting expectations for users that were fundamentally unrealistic. I think what's so important with NFC is that we find a way for people to experiment, to use, to get familiar, for them to see value from it. And with, with all due respect, sorry to the person who asked the question earlier on the mobile payments, my worry is that when um, this interspirience um, research study, which was announced on Friday, I saw the results on Friday, of only 17% of Brits are happy to use their phones like credit cards where 44% cited security concerns. All right, now, I, this, is, this was in the Telegraph on Friday, and uh, I've only I've just seen that. What concerns me is that the more we focus the discussion purely on the payment side, we actually run the risk of missing these other points for people to see value and get familiar with that technology first. No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's the brand, it's the relationship among the stakeholders as it's understood by users. Uh, and, and in, what we studied in, in the Japan case was Japan Rail. And Japan Rail is not a brand that carries with it all of the, uh, all, all of the supposed benefits of NFC. It's the idea that the technology is available there for a variety of uses. And indeed, in, in Japan, the uses uh, do extend well beyond payments. Payments uh, form perhaps uh, the, the, the core of it, but other things to do with uh, checking in, with games, with 
bonuses and other sorts of things, uh, which are exchanges that people engage in partly to uh, participate, uh, partly to exchange uh, their, their, their uh, act, act, actions for exposure to advertising. These kinds of variety of activities uh, are in Japan more broad spread, broadly, broadly spread. Uh, and, and, and in Korea too. And, and the coordination of the Japanese and the Koreans comes about almost entirely through trade uh, considerations. They're, they're, they're coordinating for the sake of opening up uh, larger markets uh, for each other, in, in effect. There was a question. Hi, I'm uh, Jennifer Hinkle. I'm an alumna of LSE. And I know we've been talking a lot about uh, transportation and um, financial transactions. I come from the healthcare sector, and I'm very curious uh, to think about that sector in terms of the potential for NFC, also the privacy, enormous privacy concerns, of course, when you're dealing with um, health data. And have any of you come across in your research any um, examples of whether it's organizations or companies that are really pushing um, into this area? And uh, where could I go to find more information on that? OK, yes. There are, there are a number of initiatives, and um, I think one of the outstanding um, examples of um, NFC use is in the Netherlands, where uh, 20,000 district nurses have been equipped with NFC-enabled devices. They're able to visit patients in their homes, so patients stay in the home rather than going into um, a nursing home or hospital. The patient prefers that. The district nurse uses navigation on the device to actually is told where to go. On getting to the home of the patient, one of the problems for all um, health workers in this situation is that often when they knock or ring at the door, the person doesn't hear them or can't come to the door. So what happens here with the NFC-enabled um, device, they actually touch the door, and with that there's a box on the door, and it opens, and the key um, is made available. The health visitor then enters the um, home, treats the patient, and there is an, N an NFC tag within the home, and if, the, every, if everything is okay uh, with the treatment, the patient seems fine, the nurse simply touches the tag, which sends a report through. Now, quick thing on this um, scenario. Social value. Patient stays in the home. Clearly, social cost. Um, uh, value is um, tremendous. With regards to security, the security systems that are put in place, there is no detail relating to the ID of the actual patient or their medical records. However, there is an ID for that door, access, and then trigger. The nurses are far more effective because they're not having to fill in forms, paperwork, simply touching the tag means that they are far more productive. Oh, and by the way, because they're using the sat-nav on the device, their carbon emissions have been reduced by 23%. Point of this being that here's an example of NFC, which is a perfect example of how NFC can have commercial and social value. And that's just one, but with an aging population, an example of um, what could be done in so many other um, countries. With regard to other systems relating to collecting data, there are a number of monitoring devices um, so that people are able to um, just touch. And those, some of those that are being developed are, have a question mark over them because 
If one looks at um, some of the applications on mobiles at the moment to help you monitor um, your performance in sports or whatever, how do you actually record that data? Are you the only one that has access, etc.? But I would say this other example of visiting the home is a perfect example of NSC being used. And as you're a student, I'll have to say that uh, Sylvia L. of Calderwood has compiled as part of our project a very large bibliography which has many references to that and a variety of other such uses. And so we'll certainly make the bibliography available and we'll be writing up uh, uh, descriptions of how the variety of, uh, of, of uses is expressed, especially in the trade press, as, as an example. If I could just say, uh, on the issue of mobile phones and health more generally, last year Aaron Martin and I did a study for the International Development Research Center on the use of mobile technologies in developing countries and emergency situations uh, for healthcare, and it's, it's actually quite frightening. The most common uh, device for medical records in Sub-Saharan Africa is actually a Nokia phone uh, from the 1990s, which a lot of the practitioners use and it's absolutely fine except for the fact that is that device secure? Now everybody's keen to move to these fancy new operating systems, these smartphones, and we were speaking to some of the developers who are de developing the modern version of those apps for uh, health workers in developing countries and we asked a uh, simple question, are you encrypting the data on the, on the phone? And they said, well, no, we're, we're, why would we do that? We're too busy building this cool technology. Why should we worry about these Western values of information security? It's, uh, it's actually quite worrying what's going on. And they are leading the world when it comes to the use of mobile uh, devices in, across, uh, across society. I've seen a couple of questions, one up here, down there. My name is George Liev. I'm an alum of DLC. And my question is about consent and terms and, and conditions. Uh, do you see the NFC industry agreeing on a common template, basically, a bare bones terms and conditions template uh, to which different companies then can make modifications, but uh, which basically gives visibility and transparency to the users? My simple answer is yes. And the reason for it is that if they don't, I believe that others will, and those developers that try to go down a different route are going to find it increasingly difficult. And I, therefore, we have been doing more work, and we've been working with a number of other bodies to build on what has come out of this research to actually provide those guidelines for the adopt-in. And yes, you're going to be seeing far more of it. I think it will be adopted. Take one, perhaps two more questions. Uh, down in front here. Hi, um, question for Mark, um, actually. Um, I really like the idea of NFC, and I think Open NFC sounds a, a very powerful way of describing the benefits of NFC without getting into privacy issues and what I want to know is uh, how will Nokia help uh, I suppose fan the flames behind open NFC so we can see it's more widespread introduction and maybe displacing some of these uh, privacy discussions 
Um, with regard to how we're approaching it, the notion of open NFC, we, um, we really started the discussion around this at WEMA um, earlier this year. Um, that has been followed through at a number of other um, events. What is gratifying is seeing the number of companies that are now going down this route um, of open um, rather than worrying about or rather focusing exclusively on those application solutions that require a secure element. Um, and I'm just gratified by the snowball effects that we're seeing already. Um, that's being fostered not only by ourselves but many other groups. So it is, it is not simply Nokia. Um, that is on a broader scale. But when you see the reaction of people on, on some incredibly simple things, um, uh, give you, just give you one other example quickly, um, and that is that for those people who have difficulty, um, um, older users who have difficulty remembering numbers or how to call someone, actually seeing them with photographs of their children or other family members, literally having photographs on the wall, and all that's happened is an NFC tag has been put behind each photograph, so if they touch the photograph of their son, it phones their son. Because what NFC enables you to do is, by using the tag that is programmed in that manner, it will make the phone call to that person. So, some of these are incredibly simple, but you just see the value that um, people are realizing from it. Um, and it's quite incredible. Kits are being made available, yes. Uh, more news will follow, but this is not a Nokia uh, promotional event. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much for your contributions and, com and discussion, and I'll call the session to an end. And uh, uh, I, I just want one last word to say that the kind of research that we've been conducting on the relationship between some very technical features of the architecture of these mechanisms and the business models and everything in between is something that we rarely get a chance to do in a manner which can express how the uh, details of the technology are likely to fit together with the economics of the new industry. And so we take forward this kind of research in a variety of ways and I hope you can look forward to more descriptions of new technologies along these lines in the future. Thank you very much.